Merry Christmas. I was the first one to say that here this morning. I love Christmas. I love the Christmas season. I love singing Christmas songs. And how many of you in here started singing Christmas songs before Thanksgiving? Anyone like that? I'm raising my hand. Okay. How many of you did not sing it until after Thanksgiving? Anyone like that? Okay. And some people even view that maybe as a sin. But uh, uh, it's Christian liberty, I guess. So, but we didn't do it as a church till after Thanksgiving. So we don't want to offend anyone. There are some beautiful Christmas songs. And then if you listen to the radio or are in the stores, there's some pretty odd Christmas songs out there. I love Christmas songs like Oh Holy Night, especially if you have someone that's singing that and has a beautiful voice. I love Silent Night, holding those candles. We'll do this tonight when we have our Christmas party. We'll turn the lights down, have those candles come out. We'll sing Silent Night acapella as a church. What are uh, some of the oldest Christmas songs? You know some old Christmas songs? There's one you might know called Good Christian Men Rejoice. You know that song? That was written in 1328. Or how about O Come All Ye Faithful? I think we have that one coming up in a couple weeks here. That was written in the 1200s. And the music was later on, composed later on. But really the oldest Christmas songs are found in Luke chapter 1. Would you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1? Over the next four weeks, we're going to be studying the Christmas songs of Zechariah and Mary, the angels, and then last of all, Simeon. So the title of this series in December is the Songs of Christmas. This week, we're going to be studying the Christmas song of Zechariah found in Luke 1, 67 through 79. This has been traditionally called the Benedictus or the Song of Blessing. It's a prophetic hymn of praise to God for God's promise to save his people. It's a song of blessing to God for his salvation. My sermon really is going to be in two parts. The first part is going to be reviewing the story of Zechariah. And you really can't understand the song until you understand the story. The second part, we'll be studying this praise song of Zechariah. The main idea of today's sermon and really what I believe of this text of Scripture is that when you feel lost in doubt, praise God for the promises found in his word about your salvation. When you feel lost in doubt, when you're in a place of uncertainty and you're unsure about the future, when you're feeling down, maybe you are wondering if God has even given up on you, when you're you're questioning if God is even listening to your prayers anymore, when you wonder if maybe God even still is there. Praise God for 
the promises found in his word about your salvation. Luke 1, 67 through 79, we will see the answer in God's word for the person who feels lost, person who feels down, that one who has temptations flooding their mind or anxieties gripping their soul, and they wonder what they are to do. And so here we're going to see the answer is to praise God, to look at his word, to see what he promises, and to see how he has rescued us. The account of Zechariah here in this prophetic psalm was written for us so that we may have certainty about God's work in our life. In fact, go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 4, and I want you to notice that this book, this gospel account was written 25 years after Christ's ascension around that time, and it was written for the purpose of giving us certainty. Look at Luke 1, verse 4. Luke wrote that this gospel was written, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. There are so many things that are uncertain in our world, aren't there? As we look at 2023, who knows but God what 2023 holds? It's so unsettling sometimes to not know what's going to happen. We, we can feel destabilized by that. But church, we do know this. We are certain of this. And that is what God says in his word is true. And so the scriptures were written so we can know who God is with certainty. And we can know how God has provided salvation for us. And so this account of Zechariah was written down, this true historical account written down so you may have certainty about God's promises according to salvation. In fact, we're going to look at Luke 1, 5 through 24. I'm going to maybe do something a little bit different. I'm just going to tell it like a story. I'm not going to read through the whole passage here. I'll, I'll read through a couple parts, and I'll tell you that when we get to that. But I thought, I just want to kind of paint this scene for you. Because he, here was Zechariah, a, a priest before God. And he stood before the temple of God. And imagine that temple, this, this glistening white marble temple that, was, that had gold at the top. And it would have been the jewel of Jerusalem as it stood at the highest point of the temple. It was the most, or the, of, the, of Jerusalem. It was the most sacred place in all of Israel. And Zechariah would have stood before that temple to do something very special. He was old, maybe in his 70s, maybe 80s. In his whole life, he had been waiting for this moment. The lot had been cast and he had been picked to go and offer up prayers to God inside of the temple which means he would have approached first the gigantic sacrificial altar outside the temple 
that square altar where they would put the sacrifices of Israel up there, he would have taken the instruments, the sacred instruments, and taken coals off of that altar, and then he would have walked up the steps, ascended the steps into the temple, walked through the doors into the holy place. And he would have seen that altar of incense before the, the curtain of the Lord that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. He would have taken those coals over to that altar of incense, placed them in there. The, the smoke and the incense would have gone up before the Lord, representing that God was listening to the prayers of his people. And then he would have prayed for Israel. He had that very special privilege to do that on that day. And I want you to imagine Zechariah there in front of that altar of incense, in front of that great curtain that went up, praying. Think about all the priests who were outside the, the sea of priests that were praying as well. But as they prayed, as Zechariah prayed, there was a sense of hopelessness, of doubt in Israel and in Zechariah. You see, behind that curtain in the Holy of Holies, there was nothing. It was just an empty room. The Ark of the Covenant that represented God's presence was no longer there. So was God even with his people anymore? I'm sure they wondered. God had not spoken through his holy prophets for over 400 years. Would God speak to his people again? They might have wondered. The Jewish people were under foreign oppression. They had been so for centuries. Why? Because of their sins. Would God ever come and save them and deliver them? These were legitimate questions that the Jewish people were asking at this time. Even Zechariah had doubt in his own soul for his entire life, his entire marriage, Elizabeth, his wife, and Zechariah had prayed that God would give them children. I mean, how many times had they come to that temple and they cried out to God and said, God, please give us children, and God did not give them children. Elizabeth was still barren. Now they were too old, unable to have children, and the question that they had to ask was, why did not God not bless us in this way? Israel and Zechariah were lost in doubt. And then suddenly, while he's standing there before the altar of incense in that dimly lit room to his right, an angel appeared to him. Almost as if the angel came out from behind the curtain from the Holy of Holies and appeared right there. And he was shocked. I mean, his eyes were big, his knees were weak. He froze in terror. Imagine that glorious celestial being standing right there in that temple before him. And then if you look down in verse 13, this is what he says. The angel said to Zechariah, do not be afraid, Zechariah. And then listen to the promises of God 
given to Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. I mean, in that announcement, think about all the things he heard there. In that announcement, Zechariah heard God's promise that Elizabeth would finally have a baby. And not just any regular baby. This would be a, a very special baby. This would be the one promised in Malachi chapter 4. In Malachi chapter 4, in verses 5 and 6, the Bible says that there's going to be someone like Elijah that's going to come, and then he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. Malachi, he quoted Malachi, which were the last two verses in the Old Testament, the last time God even spoke to Israel 400 years ago. And the remarkable fact is their baby was going to be that Elijah-like prophet who would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God through his preaching. This is good news, right? I mean, this is, this is the the promise of God's blessing in Israel and in his life. And so how did Zechariah respond? Well, you can see his response. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall this be? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Biologically, angel, it doesn't work like that for humans. There's a, there's a window of time where we can have children, and after that, we can't. How is this even possible? Zechariah's mind was clouded with doubt here. And have you ever wondered how that was even possible? How can you be standing in the temple? I mean, God providentially, once in a lifetime, put you in this situation. I mean, you hear you have the scripture breathed out by the Holy Spirit in Malachi saying that there's going to be one coming. And now you have an angel telling you that one coming is going to be your son. <laughs> this is pretty amazing. How could you stand there and doubt this? Well, maybe we should look at our own hearts and ask that question. How can we question God loves us? when we consider that God sent his son to die in our place. He displayed his love for you by sending his son. How could you doubt his love? How could you speculate if God is still good when he has provided so much for you? You have life and breath and salvation from God. You know, Churcha, how often do we find ourselves right where Zechariah was? God has poured out his grace upon us. We have so many wonderful blessings from God. And yet, sometimes we doubt. Friends and family reject us. And sometimes 
we think maybe that means then God has rejected us. Or we pray for something, we ask God for something, we say, this is God, what I, what I want, maybe what I need, and then he doesn't answer in the way we thought he should. And we say, God, what are you doing? We get upset, or we turn inward and flounder in self-pity and despair. That's not God's desire for us, church. It was not God's desire for Zechariah to doubt he should have looked around and looked up. He should have, he should have jumped up and down and said, wow, God's promises, woohoo!" and run out and told all the priests. But instead he said, eh, how's that possible? His brow wrinkled, his eyes narrowed, his heart doubted. And so the angel says in verse 19, well, here, I'll prove it to you. I'll prove to you that it's going to be true. He says in verse 19, think about this. Here's Gabriel, the celestial being. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And here's your proof. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because why? You did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. The angel left and Zechariah came out to the crowd of priests there and they're all going, what took you so long in there? And they found out what took him so long because Zechariah tried to speak and he went, uh, uh, he couldn't say anything. And they realized he must have seen a vision. Something remarkable happened to him in there. Think of Elizabeth's shock as he comes home and comes in the door and he can't speak. In fact, verse 62 indicates maybe he couldn't even hear. So this guy is completely silent. He can't say anything. He can't hear anything. Elizabeth did conceive and six months later, for six months I should say, she stayed in her home hidden. So Zechariah not only is silent in that way, but he doesn't go anywhere. They're, they're stuck in their house there. He's isolated. The only one that Zechariah could talk to is God. And, and really, the only one that Zechariah could listen to was God as he, as he looked at the Old Testament scriptures. And don't you think he did that? I mean, he heard the angel quote Malachi, and it's like, hmm, maybe I should take these nine months of pregnancy and, and study what God's word says. And then six months into her pregnancy, there was a knock on the door. There was a teenage relative named Mary. And Mary tells Elizabeth that she's pregnant and it's a supernatural pregnancy. And she had an angel called Gabriel. Can you imagine her coming over to Zechariah and writing this down, and Zechariah looking at that paper and, listen, and reading what, what Mary did when she had the angel Gabriel come to her. What did Mary do? She believed. Oh, think of the shame he felt there. But think about that. Mary was going to have a baby, and this was going to be the Messiah. Elizabeth was having a baby, and he was the forerunner. He was the Elijah-like prophet. Then... Verse 57, Elizabeth has her baby. And think about that news. 
I mean, they kept it hidden. <laughs> and then it's like, hey, by the way, Elizabeth, she's in her 70s, and here's her baby. And they had a party. Nine or eight days later, they had a party where they circumcised him, and they named him. And everyone says, oh, look at little Zechariah. And, and Elizabeth says, no, 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 his name is John. And they said, no, 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 we don't do that. You know, obviously, his name is Zechariah. And they said, well, ask, ask the dad. So they write it down for him. And, and he says, his name is John. And the Bible says, when that happened, his tongue was loose. Look at verse 63, the very end of the verse. And they all that witnessed this wondered, verse 64, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing to God. And what was that blessing to God? It was Luke 1, 67 through 79. He praised God for the promises found in the word of God for the salvation of his people. And it's like during those nine months, his head was stuffed full, was pumped full of God's promises and God's word. And then what we see right here in this passage, it's like when his mouth is loose, it just explodes with God's faithfulness. So I'm going to read this entire this song. It's in two stanzas, verse 68 through 75, speaks of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In verse 76 through 79, speaks of John, the forerunner. Luke 1, 67. Would you follow along with me as I read our text here this morning? So that was our first part. Now we're into our second part. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, and notice as I go through this, the promises of God and the salvation of God. Blessed be the Lord and God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, speaking of John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the... Uh, in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. And this is God's holy word. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand this text of scripture. Father, we're so thankful for this prayer, this song of praise. And may, Lord, our hearts understand your promises in regard to salvation, and may we sing your praises all week long, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
verse 67, verse 68 down through verse 79, are a prayer of praise for God's salvation provided for his people. And I want to just go first and show you the promises of God and then show you that they relate to the salvation of God. In fact, look down in verse number 69, and you can see he says there that he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. In this text of scripture, you see three covenants, three Old Testament covenants. God has many promises in the scripture, but really these unconditional covenants that God make God made with his people are some of the most special ones. And here we see the divinic covenant. That's a covenant God made with David's royal family and also with Israel and really for all of us who are in God's family. And that is that a Messiah would come who would come from the kingly line of David. And and first he would come, be born, die on a cross, rise again so he could rule our hearts. And then second, he would come back and he would rule on this earth. That last part is still future. Notice verse 70, the promise found in his word. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, this is speaking of the Old Testament of old. Verse 72, to show mercy, notice, promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. And what covenant was that? Verse 73, it's the Abrahamic covenant. That was God's promise to Abraham that there would be a descendant who would come, who would bless the whole world. And who was that descendant? It was Jesus Christ. Verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered might serve him. And then look at verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. This is what covenant? This is the new covenant. This is the covenant he's made with us, church. This is the covenant we celebrate when we take the Lord's table. And that is that through Jesus Christ, we have all of our sins forgiven. Ephesians 1 and verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. And so so notice these promises, these covenants here. These are promises God has made for his people. And Zechariah's heart was filled with the knowledge of God's promises, and he sang out the praise to God. In 1874, Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China, was in a rural part of China, and they were in desperate need. They had no money left in their funds, and so him and his wife were praying that God would provide. And he wrote this down to his wife. He said this to her, The balance in hand yesterday was 67 cents. The Lord reigns. Herein is our joy and our confidence. We have 67 cents and all the promises of God. And church, that's what it is right there. I mean, here you have a man who was 
was in a potential time of despair, but instead he fixed his eyes on heaven and the promises God has for him. And this is what God is calling us to do as well. How are you to respond when you feel lost in doubt? Praise God for the promises found in his word. Zechariah finally, after nine months, was able to do that. Church, may I encourage you to do the same? Maybe God has put your life on pause like Zechariah. Take this time to study the promises of God, to to pray the promises of God. Maybe memorize the promises of God. Go through the scripture and find his promises. Put them on a sticky note. Put them on your computer. Put them in your bedroom. Put them in your house. Think about the promises of God. Praise God. Maybe you feel the weight of responsibility in your life or your You're squeezed by the stress of life. Well, friend, you can find release and freedom as you look up to God and think about his promises. The promises of God free us because God cares for us. How can we praise God when we, in our time of of uncertainty and difficulty, how is that possible? It's because God has gracious and merciful and good promises for us. I mean, think about what the scripture says. In Joshua, as God's people were considering what God had done, they said this, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. It's like they're sitting around the dinner table and they're thinking about all that God has done and they're saying, God said this and he did it. God promised this and he was faithful. And friends, can I encourage you to to do the same thing? When you you sit down for supper today or when you have a meal with your family this week and instead of talking politics, that's depressing. Instead of talking about that person and complaining, go around and say, everyone, let's say a promise found in God's word. Let's praise God for that. We have a great treasure, and it's called the promises of God. And God wants us to take the treasure of his promises found in his word, deposit that in our hearts, and then keep bringing it up all day long. Second Peter 1.4, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises. Imagine a child that's in his room It's a day after Christmas, and he got so many toys. His room is filled with toys. And he's sitting in the middle of his room, and he has one of his older toys there, and his toy's broken. And he starts crying about his broken toy. And his mom comes in and says, oh, it's okay, buddy. You know, we got a lot of other toys here. Just, you know, just forget about that one and play with the other ones. And he's in despair. The whole day long, he just moans and groans because his toy's broken but he doesn't even see the blessings all around him. (laughs) It's filled with toys. Your room's filled with toys. Go play with something else, kid. How often are we like that narrow-minded child? Our lives, God's storehouse of heaven, 
are filled with promises, and yet we get so focused on that negative thing, that bad thing, and, well, this is bad in my life. God has a storehouse full of treasure for you, and it's his promises. Go to the promises of God. And so here we see God's promises, and it's related to the theme of salvation. Really, there's two groups here. You have Israel, God has promised things for Israel, and many of the things he promised here for Israel are yet to happen. And then God has promises for us, and those are promises that we can trust in our life here today. And so look back in verse 68. I'm going to highlight some of these promises related to salvation. We're not going to go through every verse, every word. But notice verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Who's the Lord God? He's the triune God who from the Father has blessed us by saving us through the work of his Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. For he has visited us. Who's the he? That's the Lord God. Has visited us. That's the incarnation. That's God coming in the flesh to be our savior, and redeemed his people. Now, wait a second. This is, this is past tense here. He has visited and redeemed. Isn't, isn't the baby Jesus in Mary's womb? I mean, isn't Mary three months pregnant? So this is in the past? What's this talking about? Well, these are past tense verbs, and they're what theologians call prophetic In other words, it's a prophecy that it's so certain it's going to happen, it's like it's already taken place. And so what what he's saying here, he's saying, God has visited us. And and he had at that moment, right? The baby was in the womb, but he hadn't redeemed yet. But it was so certain it was going to happen, it's like he says it in the past tense. And what is redemption? Redemption is that word where we picture that, that person that's in the slave market And they're bound by chains. As humans, we're bound by the chains of sin and death. We have the slave master of Satan and Jesus. He stepped forward. He paid the price for our freedom with his own precious blood. And he redeems. He frees us from sin and from death and from the grip of Satan. And it's not just that he has done the work of redemption. It's that the work of redemption is done by him alone. If you have a NASB, you can probably see this, but the the, the really literal translation of that verse is he has visited and accomplished redemption for his people. In other words, he did the work. In other words, salvation is all of God. It's so contrary to what our world believes and many people really believe and really all religions believe. And that is that religion is up or Christian or salvation is up to me. If if there's any hope for me being saved, then I got to have some part in it, right? I mean, I got to count these beads and pray. I got to show up every week at mass and and make sure I have my sins forgiven. I got to make sure that my my good outweighs my bad, right? Isn't Isn't that true? No. That's not what the Bible teaches. Here, what this is saying is salvation was accomplished, redemption was accomplished by Christ alone. These verses, my friends, are saying that salvation is all of God and you have absolutely no part in saving yourself. 
Praise God for that, right? Because I've tried it. I've tried to save myself. I've tried to be good enough, and I can't be good enough. So our response to God's salvation must be what? God, I surrender. I surrender. I just trust you and your work on my behalf. Salvation is all of God accomplished through Jesus Christ. And look at verse 69. He is the horn of salvation and has raised up, verse 69, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Horns represent strength and power. Think about animals that have horns and the power that those horns represent. In the book of Daniel, kings are spoken of as being horns. Also on the sacrificial altar in that temple, on each corner of that temple, of, of that altar were, were horns. And those horns represented that God had the power to save through that sacrifice. Which is why if you study 1 Kings chapter 1, Adonijah was running for his life. He tried to usurp the position of Solomon as king. And Solomon was crowned, and so this guy was running for his life, and he runs and he grabs a hold of the horn of the altar. And what's he doing? He's saying, I need to be saved. I need to be rescued. I'm, I'm going to be killed for my crime here. That horn represented that God had the power to have mercy and save. What's amazing and wonderful about Christ's work we have no need for that sacrificial altar or those horns because God has raised up the horn of salvation on the cross when Jesus died and all who cling to Jesus can be saved. That's the promise. He has the power to save anyone who comes to him by faith. And then notice these other words, verse 71, he saved us. Verse 72, he showed mercy like, like a king who, who shows mercy to a criminal and lets him go free. It's a God shows mercy to us. Verse 73, he grants us. Verse 74, that we could be delivered, we can be saved, we can be rescued. I was talking to someone the other day and an interesting question came up. When God saves us, why doesn't he just take us to heaven? Why don't we just go to glory? Well, I think the answer to that is found there in verse 74. And that is that we are saved for a greater purpose than just going to heaven. We are saved to serve. We are saved by God to serve God. Notice verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear of our enemies and in holiness and righteousness before him, that's God all of our days. And this, this is language like the Exodus, where God said he was going to save them, so why? They could serve him. That is always God's end of salvation. God saves us, so we will serve him. We are saved to serve. Would you say that with me? We are saved to serve. Salvation is all of God, so you will serve him all your days on earth and then serve him for all eternity. And friend, that might sound 
to maybe some who don't know the Lord as something that is bad or terrible, but not if you're serving the King of Kings, the Lord of glory, the one and only good God who has given us all these wonderful things to enjoy. I mean, it is so joyful and pleasurable and and wonderful to be under him and serving him. This is the way of Christ, right? Christ washed the disciples' feet, and he said in John 13, 15, I've given you an example that you should do as I have done. In other words, I'm serving you guys. Hey, you know what God's called us to do, disciples? Let's go out and serve. So the question we have is, are are you saved? And if you are, are you serving? The ladies came and yesterday and they did these decorations. See these decorations? Wonderful decorations here. And thank you, ladies, for doing that. They came and they served. But you, do you know the biggest blessing in serving in these ways, whether it be putting decorations up or the men have these work days that we do? It's not, it's not the things we're doing. It's not putting up decorations. It's actually... It's not just getting things done. It's actually getting people done while you get things done. What do I mean by that? It's actually when you're working with another lady and you're getting to know her, you're fellowshipping with her. You're asking her, hey, how's your week gone? How can I pray for you? You see, see those kind of things, it's not just about getting the work done and having pretty decorations. It's actually about getting people done. That's serving God. The men met yesterday, and we prayed together. And you know these men, they served you. How? They prayed for you. I think it's probably one of the greatest ways that we can serve one another is to pray for one another. One of my greatest burdens for this church, and the greatest burdens that the elders, the greatest burden the elders have is for our spiritual growth as a church. You know, yeah, you you want to meet budget, and you want to see people come, but those kind of measures of growth, I mean, it's like that important. Your spiritual growth, becoming more like Jesus Christ, knowing and loving him, loving his word, that's the reason we're here. And so we should pray for you. And I, and I, and I think probably the greatest conviction in my life is when I don't pray for the church like I should, because I know that there's going to be a day when I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ and he's going to say, okay, you were an elder in the church. You were to pray for the church. Did you do that faithfully? And I want you to know, church, that we as elders, we take that very, very serious. When we look through that directory, we're seeing your face and we're praying that God would help you to grow. That's serving the Lord. And every church member in here, when we show hospitality, we're serving God. Children, when you honor your parents in the Lord, you're serving God. Spouses, husbands, when you, when you sacrificially love your wife, you're serving the Lord. Employees, students, when you work the best you can, as if God is your boss or he's your professor, you're serving the Lord. And so we're saved to serve. Notice some other words here, verse 67. Or verse 60, uh, probably, sorry, verse 77. He gives knowledge of salvation. So there you have salvation to his people, the forgiveness of sins. I mean, that's really, isn't that the heart of it right there? He releases us from the penalty of our sins. And if you have nothing else in this world that you can think of to praise God for, that right there is something to praise God for. 
The saying goes like this. Your sin will take you farther than you want to go. Your sin will cost you more than you want to pay. And your sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. That's true, isn't it? I don't know if you've memorized that before, but that's something that should cause us to be sober-minded. But this is also true. Christ's forgiveness will take all your sins away. Christ's forgiveness costs you nothing because of his blood he did pay. And Christ's forgiveness will keep you in the love of God to stay. If you're in here and you're without Jesus Christ, he invites you to experience this salvation he has provided. Friend, and it's not by your works. It's not by you measuring up to some kind of standard. It's by you humbling yourself before the Lord and saying, I can't do it, but Jesus has done it. He lived that life that I could not live. He died in my place. He rose again. I believe that in Jesus Christ, I surrender my life to you. And you know when that happens, what he does for us? He pours out his blessings upon us. It's called grace. And he gives us the inheritance of Jesus Christ. Verse 78, he's given us mercy, the tender mercy of God. Those who are in darkness, those of us in darkness and our sin, he has given us light and he offers us peace. So when you're lost in doubt, what are you to do? Christian, where are you at today? You burdened? Are you uncertain? You're watching too much news? <laughs> Turn it off. Open the word. Look at the promises of God and trust in what he Trust what he has done for you. I was thinking about a couple promises as we exit here today. Your body maybe is hurting. Remember the promise of 2 Corinthians 5.1, there is a new body for you in glory. Maybe you think maybe God doesn't want to be in fellowship with me anymore. Remember the promise of Revelation 3.20. Behold, he stands at the door and he knocks. Maybe you think, well, maybe God has forgotten about me. Hebrews 13.5, he promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Maybe you think, well, I can't handle this anymore. I can't handle life anymore. 2 Corinthians 12.1, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. I promise you that. Or maybe you think, I'm fearing what might happen when I take that last breath. John, 1 John 2, 25, this is the promise he has made to us, eternal life. Hold on to that promise. I can't tell you how many people I've stood next to their bedside and maybe eventually or maybe at that moment they've passed on and, and that is the promise, that is the verse to hold on to right there. It's, he's promised us eternal life. When you hear the corruption and scandal of our government, think about 2 Peter 3.13. He has a promise for a new government, a new heaven, and a new earth. Or how about if you're tired and you're weary, Matthew 11.28, come to me, Jesus says, all who are labor, who labor and are heavy laden, I promise I will give you rest. Or think about the promise that Jesus said, to those who think, maybe, maybe I might lose my salvation. Maybe God 
won't forgive me. John 10, 28, no one will snatch them out of my hand, he promises. Or maybe sins are knocking on your door, sins of the past. Think about Zechariah's song, the promises, Jesus came. Jesus accomplished redemption, and he saves. Let's pray.